Good morning, Agus Folte, quick playback. Well, this was the week which marked the first month anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. Come from your offices, your homes, your schools and universities. Come in the name of peace. A week where international politicians met. NATO has never, never been more united than it is today. A week where politicians here at home clashed. It's not a nice thing to look down her nose at me and say what you said to me a while ago. Not nice. It's not, not nice what you said to me either, deputy just there, quite frankly. And a week where Irish politics welcomed a new leader. I joined the party many years ago in the late 80s and the party has been written off more than once and uh, has come back. And hanging over it all was the increasingly desolate situation in the Ukraine and the stories are heartbreaking. I'm joined on the line by Anastasia Hribanova from BBC's Ukrainian Service. Thank you for speaking to us this morning, Anastasia. You're in central Lviv in western Ukraine. A few days have been quite turbulent and everyone who is living in Lviv now, I fled Kiev, uh, we have realised that Lviv uh, as a safe haven as we perceived it is not that safe anymore. Just even a week before there were some normal nights where you could get some normal sleep but uh, just as I say just last night we had three air raid sirens. Those, I mean we forgot what normal sleep feels like honestly. We feel exhausted. It's like as if we're waiting for something, for something bad to happen. I do hope that it's just, you know, a premonition. I mean, we're trying to keep our heads cool. Your parents are in eastern Ukraine, aren't they? Yes, they are. They're in eastern Ukraine. It's a rather painful and personal story for me because uh, my parents and I, we uh, were on the different sides. My parents are very pro-Russian. But it's true. It's the sad reality for my family. And this is for me, this is uh, like a sad example of how the Russian propaganda can work. And in my case, uh, and in case of many other families, it's just tearing people's lives apart. It's just setting the families against one another. Can I just ask you on that? So when they are told that Russia is freeing Ukraine from Nazis, do, do they believe that? They absolutely do. That's what my mom told me on the very first day when I called her and said, like, the Kiev uh, has come under shelling. And she said, that cannot be true. Russia isn't killing civilians. They will just, you know, hit the key military objects to, so to say, to purge the country from all the Nazi who are here. And you're going to be fine. And we had a huge fight that uh, that night. And uh, it's still it's still breaking my heart to talk about it. The worst thing is that I love my family deeply, but uh, we cannot talk to each other. It's too, too painful. As heard on Claire Byrne on Monday and then on Wednesday morning. But first to the disappearance of photojournalist Max Levin, who was reporting from a front line near Kiev. Journalist Sarah Firth joined Claire. Max Levin is an incredibly talented Ukrainian journalist and photojournalist and cameraman. He's been missing since March 13th when he was filming outside of Kiev. His colleagues are now asking for any information anyone has. Um, I worked with Max, as you said, many times. And what you should know about Max is uh, how kind and just totally committed he is to his job as a journalist. You will almost certainly have seen Max's work from Ukraine, probably without realising it. And when you work with Max, you understand exactly the type of journalist that you want to be. He sets the bar so extremely high for all of us. 
and, and I can hear that you're upset and this is not easy for you because your friend and your colleague is missing now for, for 10 days. But you decided to go public with this along with his family in the hope of just getting some information on where he might be. This for you is the only resort. Yes. And everyone is just desperately hoping for help here and, and that he comes home safe. Thursday marked the first anniversary since the invasion into Ukraine and President Zelensky had pleaded for international support. You're welcome back. Protests are being held around the globe in solidarity with Ukraine to mark one month since Russia's bloody invasion began. Barry Lenhan was outside the Russian embassy in Dublin for drive time. Hundreds have answered Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky's calls to gather all around the globe. And as you can hear in the background, I'm not sure if you can hear Cormac, yep. the crowd just being treated to a rendition of the Ukrainian national anthem. And the main organiser from ICTU is Kevin Callanan, and we can hear from him now. Well, what we wanted to do today was to give people an opportunity, to give the Irish people and Irish workers an opportunity to show solidarity with Ukraine and the Ukrainian people, indicate that. Ukrainian refugees will be welcome and supported here. That's going to be really important over the coming weeks. And we want to send a very loud message to Putin and to Russia to stop the war. Well, President uh, Zelensky of Ukraine, his call to take to the streets in the name of peace. Evident, uh, Barry, where you are, is there a strong showing there? Uh, a month since the invasion, several protests held here at the Russian embassy since then. But the big difference, as we know now, is that the bloodshed has continued since those initial protests here at the embassy all those weeks ago. A UNICEF, for instance, pointing to the number of children that have been killed thus far and also looking towards the bloodshed. Well, I'm from Ukraine. I just arrived two weeks ago and I can't uh, just sit at home and do nothing. I, I, I'm eager to protest. And the welcome you've received from Ireland in such difficult circumstances. How has it been? It has been terrific. The Irish community has been so welcoming. My son is welcome at school. They can offer you food, they can offer you clothes. It has been very pleasant so far. Barry Lennon there. But while ordinary people take to the streets, what political moves can be made? The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has accused Europe of acting too late to stop the Russian invasion. His comments were made in a late-night video address to a meeting of EU leaders in Brussels. Western leaders met for three summits with NATO, the G7 and EU on Thursday, all discussing the war in Ukraine. Tony Connolly had this report from Morning Ireland. Well, this was a speech to EU leaders appealing again directly. Now, there's a, a very vivid account by Vladimir Zelensky of life under Russian bombs, children killed or abducted. But then he goes on to uh, talk about Ukraine's European aspirations, its aspirations to join the, the European Union. What has Michal Martin said? What did he say yesterday about Ireland's position on A, helping Ukraine and B, on imposing further sanctions against Russia? When it comes to sanctions, the key principle has to be that sanctions hurt Russia more than they hurt the European Union. He's clearly of the view, I think a mainstream view around the table, that banning Russian oil and gas would 
do more harm than good to the European economy. Now, there were three separate gatherings in Brussels yesterday and I heard one correspondent say that in one way the meetings were the message, that the important thing was that everybody was there and and was seen to be acting as one. But what was actually pledged yesterday? Well, at the NATO meeting there was a pledge of more military support. At the G7 there was uh, an announcement of uh, further sanctions and a pledge that the G7 would do everything to bring Vladimir Putin to account for the the crimes committed in Ukraine. Now, last night at the EU summit, there was further support, but EU leaders stopped short of announcing another sanctions package and a number of countries saying, look, we can't speed up Ukraine's accession. Uh, It's not that kind of process. Certainly, the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, is saying that a speeded up candidacy was not really on the cards at the moment. The threat of escalation to an even deadlier situation in Ukraine if Russia resorts to chemical warfare is present. But could this happen, though? What do you think? Is anything possible with Putin? Yeah, I mean, I think anything is possible with with Putin. Whether anything is possible with the Russian armed forces is is maybe a different matter. Dr Ruth Diamond is a senior lecturer in post-Soviet security in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. And she says we are in a moment of acute danger. We've seen the American government do this before in the run-up to the the war, the start of the war um, in February. They issued a series of very clear warnings about what Russia's intentions were and... um, so, I mean, I think what we can see here maybe is that Biden is trying to potentially head off um, an attack of that kind by warning about it in advance. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Put- is Putin capable of it? Yes, I think everything we've seen from him suggests he probably is. Um, that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to happen, of course. And of course, listening to Joe Biden saying this, it will remind many people of Barack Obama back in 2013 and Syria warning that the use of chemical weapons would be a red line for America and for NATO. And then when Bashar al-Assad did use chemical weapons, there was no response. Right. And I'm sure this is one of the things that is emboldening uh, Putin and has been emboldening him. But whether NATO um, will tolerate a chemical weapons attack on its own borders in the same way that ultimately it kind of uh, tolerated, in a way, um, what was happening in Syria, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I think, you know, if there's a chemical weapons attack on the border with Poland or the Baltic states, um, then then that's a very different type of problem that NATO is confronted with and one they really can't ignore, I think. As heard on Tuesday's Morning Ireland. But while the war continues in the Ukraine, here at home, rising Covid cases is back on the agenda. But should the rise lead to return to our old familiar friends, mandatory face masks and distancing? Morning again, Kingston. Professor Kingston Mills from Trinity College joined Gavin Jennings on Friday's Morning Ireland. What's going on here? 23,000 cases and probably an awful lot more than that, unreported, and almost no protections. Is this living with COVID? Um, it certainly is. The surge that now we're seeing in case numbers was, I suppose, inevitable, caused by two things, really. One, this uh, more transmissible variant, um, BA2, which is a sub-variant of Omicron, which now seems to be the dominant variant here in Ireland and across Europe. At the same time as it emerged, uh, all restrictions were, were eased and, and mask wearing was essentially made non-mandatory. The other thing is that the fear factor Factor, you know, has, has, has disappeared and people have this feeling that because we were told it was over, 
that everyone could get back to normal. And everyone indeed wants to get back to normal, but the problem is that there are still people getting infected. And that's not a problem for, for, for normal, healthy people, but it is, it is still an issue for the older population and for people with underlying medical conditions. So it's very difficult to stop transmission of this virus from a person who is not wearing a mask. Um, that's the actual harsh realities of it. And would reintroducing public health measures make any difference? I don't think a public health measure introduction is, is called for, and I don't think it will make much difference. Like, for example, sitting two metres apart from someone in a room that has COVID is going to make absolutely not one whit of difference because this virus is so transmissible that if uh, you cough or sneeze in a room where there are other people that are not wearing masks, you'll get the infection, and that's as simple as that. Most younger people seem to recover very quickly. We don't know yet about whether there are going to be longer-term consequences in terms of long COVID. With, with this particular strain that we have right now because it, it appears in most people to be upper respiratory tract more, more like a sore throat and cough rather than the lower respiratory tract lung involvement that most people got with the earlier variants of the virus. But people, as you've heard, are, are ending up in hospital yes. with, the, with, the, with this virus and some people are ending up in ICU so it's not trivial in everybody. Professor Kingston Mills. Good morning, Luke. Good morning, sir. And Claire Byrne welcomed back a familiar voice into studio on Tuesday's programme. Good to see I'm you back. I'm back again, yeah, say, sadly, yeah, at some levels. I mean, yeah, we, we get slightly concerned when, you see you, when yeah. we see you, but we, you are welcome. He talked about the scale of this current wave. Yeah, global wave, actually. The WHO, 8% increase in cases in the past week globally. And it's just happening again, isn't it, in a sense? I mean, and, and it's because of this BA2 variant. And this is much more infectious than Omicron. And now that's spreading more and more widely. A great phrase I saw myself this morning was, uh, BA2 is sweeping up everybody who didn't get Omicron. In other words, it's almost impossible now to, to avoid, avoid this, really, is, is the situation. There's a lot of talk now in the last couple of days about mask wearing. Even though BA2 is more transmissible, if you do wear a mask and you do spread it, the dose will be lower. That person will get a lower dose, that means less severe disease than the person who's infected. Mm-hmm. So again, there's less pressure overall if that happens. I mean, I was amazed yesterday, I'd say half weren't wearing masks, you see, on a crowded dart. And my heart sank. I, I, in my eye, I can see the virus spreading over that crowd. Anything we can do to decrease pressure on our healthcare system has to be good. So until we get to summer or, or late spring I'd, I'd have masks on public transport. The familiar tones of Professor Luke O'Neill there and on Friday evening we heard the news that Dr Tony Holhan was stepping back as the Chief Medical Officer and his commentators wished him well. It's interesting to note how all these names and faces of all these immunologists and people involved in public health have become so familiar to us over the last few years. Well, Amanish Hunsusbjogahogol. Playback on RTE Radio 1. You know, sometimes there is good news. Slivers of light that can cheer us up. And on Tuesday night, writer Colm Tobin did just that. The period that really you never forget is the 20 minutes when you're standing there, when there is a possibility you could win the prize. Colm Tobin with the breaking news on Arena that he had scooped the prestigious and lucrative Rathbones Folio Prize in London with the £30,000 sterling award. The writer's delight was mixed with relief because as he told Sean Rocks... He was there before, in 2015, with his novel, Nora Webster. Waiting for the announcement, you know, it's a tough experience. And I remember that time in 2015, when there is a possibility you could win the prize, and you know that, because gossip is going around, and no one knows, and you're watching, and there's speeches, and everyone's doing everything, but you're the only one who's really suffering, and you're looking over. And I remember that year, Rachel Cusk was over there, Ben Lerner was over there, none of us won. But all of us were watching, thinking... Like, this is possible. This could happen. Um, someone could shout my name. Yeah. And you know, that's the part that you really have to learn to, A, contain yourself, B, show no sign of strain, and C, when your name isn't announced, 
just actually applaud the person who won and go home. But yeah, it's, not, it's you see, what John McGarren has a very good description of it in his letters where he says, um, horse racing is great as long as you're not the horse. <laughs> but that was 2015. This year he did win. And he told Sean that he tried very, very, very hard to contain himself. What did you do when your name was called? Uh, your main issue now is not to be a complete idiot. Thank the entire town of Enniscorthy, name by name. You know, go into the telephone book. You've got to keep it short and say one or two things that are reasonably, in your, in my humble opinion, intelligent. But and get off as quickly as possible because people don't want a big long speech. But it's very hard. It's very hard not to think of some one more thing you should say and feel well. This is my moment. And you've got to think it's not actually. There are people. It's like writing a book. There are readers involved. So yeah, you got you got to actually contain yourself, which I always find very hard anyway. Which of course adds to the charm, and the book that has caused all this fuss, his novel The Magician, which focuses on the life of German writer Thomas Mann. It has resonances for today. I think he was a very private and apolitical person. And he, if these wars, the First World War and the Second World War hadn't happened, he would have produced you know, a serious body of work. And he would have had a, I think he would have loved an undisturbed life. And I think we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment that idea of, of how quickly and easily and unexpectedly a war can break out. He's born in 1875, which means those wars really do affect his life and he's in exile for a long time. But I think the big thing that mattered to me was the big distance between his privacy, between he, he, he was a, in public, he was a buttoned up scholarly German who made long speeches and wrote long sentences. Mm. In private, he was a much more tentative and much more uncertain. And his sexuality, indeed, uh, from his diaries, we know that his secret erotic life was homosexual, whereas he was married with six children. Leading Sean to ask this follow-up question. In exploring that particular aspect of it, how do you do that in a way that isn't prurient? Oh, I think you're involved in creating an illusion. Um, and the illusion is that the reader is in his head, is in his life, is sees the world through his eyes, experiences things uh, as he does, so that you're constantly involved, not, you know, not looking at it from outside, but from inside. And I, also, I think that the big thing for me anyway at the moment in these years, uh, for some reason, is with the sexual element, is restraint. The novel is really designed to deal with someone whose private life is secret because you can investigate all of that yeah. and you can dramatise all of that and the distance between that and what they're saying and what they're doing. But, I mean, you're absolutely right that, that the whole idea that you, I, I am invading his privacy, you know, that, that in other words, I am inviting the reader to, to, to become him. That involves, I suppose, a, you know, you, you are crossing a certain line from, yeah. from, from fact into fiction, from, you know, from real life into illusion. The Magician by Colin Tobin the winner of this year's Rathbones Folio Prize, and Colin was talking to Sean Rocks on Arena. One cannot help but see parallels. There are parallels between what Russia is now or what it is presenting itself as and what it was then. But regardless of the good news on our airwaves, it is the dark shadow cast from the devastation that we see in Ukraine that has been hard to shelter from this week. But as we hear regular updates about the latest developments, the History Show took the opportunity to go back in time and draw some parallels from Russia's past military history focusing on the Crimean War in the 1850s. We had a single all-powerful leader who potentially misjudged what was perceived to be a weaker neighbour and the resolve of Western powers to help defend that weak. Dr Paul Hoody, historian and author of the Crimean War and Irish Society, joined Miles Dungan to discuss that war and its parallels with today. 
and it had the dubious honour of being one of the first modern wars. It was also, I suppose, in many ways, the first modern war when it comes to things like tactics, weaponry and strategy. What kind of new modes of warfare emerged from Crimea? Well, the big thing that scholars would like to say in terms of how we see this as a precursor or World War Zero is a term that has now started to be used, is we see heavy bombardment, say, around Sevastopol. We see trenches being dug in. We see the use of telegraphy. We see the use of steam trains and steam shipping is a huge thing. The reason that the Allies were able to fight such a big campaign far away was because Britain had the biggest shipping fleet in the world and Ireland was a part of that. And for Dr Hoodie, the tragic parallels between today and that war are clear. One cannot help but see parallels. We have a a Russia that is trying to maintain or increase the internal influence over that weaker neighbour and to dominate that weaker neighbour. In 2014, as you mentioned earlier on, when this all kicked off, Britain had a coalition, a coalition for the first time pretty much since the um, Crimean War, with the exception of those unitary great, you know, Second World War governments and things like that. Uh, and, And again, it goes down to micro things like this idea of Logistics, we're hearing that an awful lot in the media now. I mean, trying to get supplies in 1854, 55, 56 from Moscow, St. Petersburg, even from Warsaw down to the Crimean Peninsula was nigh impossible, especially in the winter and the autumn months. They were mud roads. And that's why the British had to build their own railway. And the Russians really struggled to get the supplies there in a similar way that they seem to be doing now. And then we mentioned sanctions there. This was a global war in 1854 to 56 because the British and the French deployed their navies at the most vital ports that the Russian Empire had and it stopped the flow of trade. The Russians couldn't trade with anyone or the Brits and the French would seize the ships and they would sell it themselves. So eventually, and this is what's been argued by the likes of Andrew Lambert, it was an economic war and it was won by the navy. And Tsar Nicholas died in 1855. That may or may not be a parallel. Indeed. Well, we'll see about that. But absolutely, that was the reason why the war could come to an end. He would not have ended it. He had gone into that war determined to win it and he would have dug his heels in. Now, he did die in 1855 and his son was able to sue for peace once he had made his own little victory, as it were, within the Crimean sphere. And it wasn't his war. He didn't start it, but he could he could finish it. Whether we see a similar scenario play out now, that remains to be seen. And despite the geographical distance from the war, Irish interest was high. And much like today, this story grabbed many Irish headlines. What did Irish people think of the of the war with Russia? Did, did they take much notice of it? There was huge interest in the war, as in Britain. France was a bit different case study. There was a bit kind of lukewarm reception to that, but Ireland and Britain went mad for it. Everyone wanted to know as much as they could, as quickly as they could. Newspapers were churning out story after story, anything kind of related to the East, about Ottoman Empire, about Russia, about Poland, or about the war itself, or individuals involved in it, would be published. By kind of 1854 into 1855, newspapers in Ireland were giving over about 50% of their coverage to something related to the war. You see dips in that, you see it waning near as the, the siege goes on in 1855 and then there's a flurry again at the end once Sevastopol falls but it's a lot of, of interest. Dr Paul Hoodie on The History Show. It was a, a traumatic thing for everyone but me because I don't remember 
a single second of it. And over on Brendan O'Connor on Saturday, another storyteller too with a very personal, dramatic encounter to share. This is actor Bob Odenkirk, also known as Saul from the major hit TV drama series Breaking Bad and Better Called Saul, telling Brendan there about his heart attack on set. We'll get back to that in a minute. But first, Brendan wants to talk to Bob about this major acting role. Am I right in saying that you'd never seen an episode of or, or that you'd never even heard of Breaking Bad when you took the job originally? I'd only seen the billboards <laughs> of, of Walter White in his underwear standing in the desert. Um, there were a couple of them in L.A. Um, I'd never seen the show and I uh, got invited to play this part in the second season And the first season was cut short by a writer's strike. So there were only seven episodes in season one of Breaking Bad. So there wasn't much of it to see. And it hadn't been on the air for a while. And um, I called a friend who I was writing with and said, you know, I was just going to call a couple of friends and ask if this show was any good. And the first person I called, his brain exploded when I said, uh, they're offering me a part on Breaking Bad. Should I do it? And he said, yes, it's the best show on TV. So I called the right person. He sure did. And then Bob went on to tell Brendan how filming on this final season on Better Call Saul had stopped for COVID. And then he had a heart attack on set. My castmate, Ray Seahorn, saw me fall down and turn grey. And uh, and she and my other castmate, Patrick Fabian, came over to me and they immediately started shouting. And everyone was in a state of shock. But luckily we had some medics people on the staff who'd been in the military who knew how to do CPR properly. After about 12 minutes of that, they got defibrillator that they had in the trunk of their car, and they jacked me up three times before they got my heart back to rhythm, and uh, and then continued CPR and got me to the hospital where I, they did surgery the next morning. So you were gone. You were gone, like, for quite a bit of time, were you? Sometimes when people say... I died, you know, that's not really true. Um, gotcha. You, you have to have an electrical impulse still in your body or you can't be resuscitated. While Better Called Saul has clearly made him a star, Brendan then asked him, is he a Hollywood A-lister? Have you become by accident now a kind of a, a serious Hollywood actor now? No. I won't let him do it You see, you're not comfortable with success, Bob, are you? That's your fundamental problem, isn't it? I I think there are people who are built to be those kinds of celebrity movie star people And then there's me and people like me Who are maybe uh, have an ability there and are able to pour themselves into the work and but don't they just sort of maintain a kind of a distance on it. I think that's who I am. We'll see. Actor Bob Odenkirk from the Brendan O'Connor show. Over in Liveline on Wednesday, two definitely A-lister politicians were heard exchanging words. I'll say one thing too clearly in this house. When it comes to understanding the electorate of Ireland, when it comes to understanding the people, the people can look at you and listen to you. Or they can look at me and listen to me and let the people decide who they think is more in tune with what the people of Ireland require. Because when I hear some of the nonsense that you come out with, my goodness, you're no man to look down your nose at me as if I'm something that you stood up on top of. I'm elected here every bit as good as you are. And you know, maybe a lot better than you are. But the funny thing about it is, I wouldn't dare to look down my nose at you or anyone else because I don't do that. 
but maybe you do because Thank you're you, a bit Deputy, of a big shot. But like I say, off we do with the airy fairies and see how far it will get you. Thank but you, you can be sure of one thing, it's not a nice thing to look her down her nose at me and say what you said to me a while ago. Not nice. It's not, not nice what you said to me either, Deputy, just there, quite frankly. Um, reflect on it and think about it. Just think about what you said, okay? Um, but leave, 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 yeah, think of, no, think about what you said. Think about, think about what you said. Are you exactly what I said? No, no, no. Reflect on it, think about it, come back here tomorrow or the next day and take it back if you want to. Uh, Deputy, the truth is you look down on me. Uh, you think that because I'm from Dublin, because I'm middle class, because I, talk, I, I, don't, I don't talk the way you talk and I have the accent that I have, that somehow I don't understand real people. But you're wrong, Deputy. I'm elected just as much as you are. Everyone in this House has a mandate. We have a mandate because real people elect us. Joe had Michael Healy Ray on the line, where they discussed the comments as highlighted in a piece by the Irish Times journalist Miriam Lord, who had called for the Deputy to apologise for the terms that some callers told Joe have caused serious offence to the gay community. You're adamant but you didn't mean it in... in in that way. And the funny thing about it is, Joe, you know that I didn't. I don't know you your mind. The, you I don't know you. Do. I don't know you. I've never met you. I don't know you. I don't know you. Well, what do you mean? You, you, you said... You, 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 you know... You, you know what I know. You know what's in my stupid head at the minute. That's what you're well, saying. Well, I know that you're not much of a person to let somebody else have their say because all you do is interrupt everything I come out with. Michael Healy right there talking to Joe Duffy on Wednesday's Liveline. And after all that... As the best gurus advise, maybe we could all do with a moment of zen. Let Mother Nature do her work. If you've been out and about for a walk over the last few days, and you probably were given the lovely weather over the weekend, you might have begun to notice the re-emergence of the bee. Zoologist from Trinity College, Collie Ennis, joined Claire to tell her more. And if, you know, you've been a bit, you know, maybe slow to get the garden cleared out this spring, did you know that you're actually helping? So it's the queens that have been hibernating underground for the uh, the cold winter months and they're starting to emerge now and forage and, and look for food so they can in turn establish nests uh, around parks and in our gardens and, and, and start the cycle of life for the next generation of bees. And are they a bit sleepy and woozy as they wander around? <laughs> It's it's quite cold, so you are going to see them kind of flopping around on the ground. They, sometimes they look like they're in distress. But the, the, the main ones you'll be seeing now at uh, this time of year are the queen bumblebees, and they're really rotund, big insects. And they have a real cool trick that they can kind of warm themselves up without using the surrounding air. They'll actually kick their, their muscles in their wings into gear, into kind of neutral, and rev them up without <laughs> flapping their wings. And that, that creates a body heat that uh, allows them to take off a little bit earlier than most insects would. And, and what they tend to love is, believe it or not, just piles of old decking and, and, and twigs and stuff covered in leaves. They'll find little gaps in there and make their nests. That's a really easy way of doing it. And it doesn't take up much space in your garden. And they absolutely adore it. So leave a part of the garden in a bit of a mess. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, leave a mess for nature. That's what we want to do. <laughs> and for the lazy gardeners who haven't quite got around to hauling out the lawnmower yet, you're more responsible. Another great way you can help bees at this time of year is if you can hold off and mow your lawn until May. No mow till May. It's a really catchy kind of a title, but that's if you can uh, do that, you're really going to help out these bees that emerge early because the the plants you're going to see around now that are flowering are like the, the dandelions and, and stuff like that. They're really important for these bees to get the energy up to establish those new, mm-hmm. new nests we're talking about. Now that is public service. And now that you're off the hook from mowing the lawn, what about Mother's Day? 
Have you made your plans? I've just returned from visiting my mum in Manchester. She's a Mayo woman, but like most of her family, she spent most of her life over beyond. Writer and performer Anne Gilday wrote this piece about her mother as heard on A Word in Edgeways on Friday morning. Like many Irish mothers of a generation, she communicates her love through cake and criticism. E.g. Would you not lose some weight? I've just made a sponge. Have you no decent shoes? There's a Jaffa cake to go with that cup of tea. Why don't you get a proper haircut? I got some eclairs. Anne goes on to explain why she thinks this mix of criticism and cake really is a demonstration of maternal love. The instinct to criticise is more of a conundrum. I'd say it's born of that generation's religiously drummed-in instinct to be humble, modest and woe betide you'd ever have a smell of yourself. The notion that the meek shall inherit the earth taken very literally, to the point where any instance of potential praise or compliment to your offspring must be inverted into a put-down. But in the subtle reverse psychology of this approach to life, such put-downs should be understood as expressions of pure maternal love and pride. Such observations are classic Irish mammy ways of expressing love. One thing's for sure, I'll miss them when they're gone. Because nobody says it like your mum. A good place to take a pause. Stick the kettle on, we'll be back in a minute. Playback on RTE Radio 1. For some people, the last seven days will be memorable, but for the right reasons. Because good, happy things happened to them that cheered us all up. As uh, Jefferson Gibson Park has control of it now and it's Ireland now, uh, inside the 22 metre line, very close towards the uh, touchline. On Saturday, Ireland took home the Triple Crown and Michael Corkin and Donald Lennon were on hand for the commentary. This is just one of the moments that led to that win. Uh, Jefferson Gibson Park away now to the other tie. Tyke Park, Ireland now within a yard of the line as they look to try and get at this one here now. Jefferson Gibson Park has options left and right. He plants himself, goes away to the right-hand side. Back with Dan Sheehan. Dan Sheehan under pressure. Mark Hansen looking to help him. Available as the ball is swept outfield here now. Taken by Robbie Henshaw. Robbie Henshaw uh, started with a foot short of the line. Taken in by Caelan Doris. Caelan Doris now has already now inched their way forward here. Good defence, it must be said, by Scotland, but it's early here. Back with Josh Van While we all take a beat to recover from that, if you're still looking for cheerful news, then we need to bring the sparkle. Uh, we have Matthew and Laura with us this morning. Good morning to you both. Welcome. Good morning. On Mondays, Ryan Turbody chats with the contestants who've been voted out from Dancing with the Stars the night before. This week, it was the turn of Love Island's Matthew McNabb, who had danced with professional dancer Laura Nolan. They were in studio to tell all to Ryan. I would have loved to have got to the final I put in so much work more importantly Laura put in so much work because I'm six foot six I have two left feet and she brought me to the semi-final so I think that says a lot about her in the end I was delighted that we were dancing together because we had an incredible time we laughed the whole way through the season if you didn't get on with your partner it wouldn't be as easy and he was improving so it was really enjoyable to see someone come on so much Mm. Now, let's be honest, half of the draw of these shows is the speculation of romance between the cast. Um, so you guys found romance. And hints have been flying about this pair the last few weeks, so they were delighted to finally get to talk about their relationship now that the news is official. 
congratulations. <laughs> Initially, people were saying, oh, are they together? Are they not? I don't care. But when I heard that you were a couple, I thought that's really lovely. <laughs> uh, so how do you feel about that? It's very public. Uh, it's probably a bit strange for you. But Laura, how do you feel about that? Even on the show there two weeks ago, we were getting a lot of comments about it. We were both like, oh, my God, like this is a lot. You know, mm. we clicked as people and we really enjoyed each other's company. So it's lovely. Like, Did you, you spot know? that, Matthew, pretty straight away? Like the, it was the chemistry from the get go? Or, yeah. or No, straight away, because yeah, uh, well, she's yeah. so positive, nice and kind to people. And she's got such a love for life that I just resonate straight away. And he goes on. Laura is the type of woman that young women should aspire to be like. Because she's strong, she's talented, she works hard, and she doesn't let anything get in the way of that. Well, I, I feel I should leave. Um, <laughs> I like your honesty. That takes guts too, though, to say yeah. something like that. And you don't have to answer if you don't want to. But was there a point as you were dancing and getting to know each other where you went, oh, oh. I actually really like him. As Matthew said, like from the beginning, there was like something there. We clicked on a different level. So I was, yeah, there was that moment, definitely. Was it in the middle of a dance? Yeah, I suppose it happened more kind of when we were, like obviously when we were going for lunch, we were talking, yeah, okay. you know, that kind yeah. of way, going for coffees and stuff. And you just, you come to realise that there's more than just a professional yeah. thing there. <laughs> Ryan was also curious to find out how Laura got on in Ultimate Hell Week. A very challenging RT programme that she'd taken part in. But how was Ultimate Hell Week? Oh, do you know what? One of the most gruelling, difficult experiences that I've ever done in my life. No, I wasn't asking about Dancing with the Stars. I was asking about... (laughs) I hope you guys are are happy together and and, and, uh, have a a good go at it. (laughs) And beyond. Matthew McNabb and Laura Nolan there with a good old-fashioned dancing love story. And over on Drive Time 2, a memorable week for Deputy Ivana Bacic. No sparkles, but plenty of intrigue. Now, earlier this month, Alan Kelly unexpectedly announced that he would be resigning as leader of the Labour Party. Within hours, it was clear there would be just one candidate to replace him. And this afternoon, just three weeks later, the party has a new leader. She joins us now in studio and Labour Party leader Ivana Bacha, congratulations. She joined Sarah McInerney on drive time. And while she wanted to talk policy and ambitious plans, there was no getting away from the topic of the former leader Alan Kelly and his unusual departure. Sarah wanted to know, was she in the room where it happened? The night that that news of Alan Kelly's departure emerged, uh, we were speaking to former Labour advisor Fergus Finlay here on Drive Time and he said he believed it was possibly the last roll of the dice for the Labour Party. Do you think he's right? Uh, Well, first I should say I'm very grateful to Fergus Finlay for writing a rather lovely piece in The Examiner um, offering me advice. Uh, uh, You know, I I take all advice and uh, but I do want to just pay tribute to Alan, to Alan Kelly himself and to his immense dignity and, you know, and just to thank him for the great support he's shown to me. The last roll of the dice for the Labour Party, though? I don't think so. You know, we've uh, I've been a Labour member for many years. Indeed, I know the party has gone through many different periods. You've also gone through five leaders in a decade, though, you being the fifth. That that speaks to a problem with the political party, doesn't it? The party has been written off more than once and uh, has come back. And I, I think there's a real appetite there for Labour values, for our core values of equality, solidarity and fairness. And this really strong appetite, which we saw in the by-election in Dublin Bay South last summer. But firstly, you mentioned Alan Kelly and your respect for him and how the, you believe the two of you be working close together. Um, but the rest of the country certainly, I think, was very surprised to hear that he was stepping down. How long before that day on March 2nd, when the rest was found out. How long before that did you know? Well, you know, as I say, Alan spoke himself in his resignation speech about a combination of factors. Did well, come about very suddenly. Well, Ivana, think, yeah. was, was it the polling or was it the fact that three of his colleagues turned up and told him he had to go? 
Well, look, as I say, Alan was very clear and very dignified in his own resignation speech. Certainly things happened fast and unexpectedly, but that's the way it does happen sometimes in politics. I think that's actually the the thing, though, really, for, for most people watching on, is that it doesn't happen like this in politics. You really very rarely see a political leader taken out without a whimper of protest, apparently, unless there's been some a lot of planning and a lot of talking in in advance. Well, as I say, I think we've addressed all that a number of weeks ago. And I'm sorry, Ivan, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I understand that he has told us what he wanted to tell us, but I'm asking you a pretty straight question, which is when you heard about or were involved in discussions about him stepping down. I'd like to move on, but I'd also like to get an answer to that question. Well, he decided to step down and made the announcement, in fact, on the Wednesday evening. And I certainly hadn't known, I don't think any of us had known a few days before that, that he was going to make that decision. You know, I do think we have to move on from that. Um, There was a meeting, though, wasn't there, uh, in uh, Mary Sherlock's house on the 26th of February. Were you there? Sarah, Sarah, as I say, I've read an all, I read a lot of column inches, I should say, at the time about so-called plots and you know conspiracies and so on. And you know, I really am not going to comment on internal party matters. And he and I will continue to work but well it's, it's together. It's a bit more than done. internal party matters, though, because if people are looking at the Labour Party and wondering should they vote for the Labour Party, they might be interested to know how a decision was made to replace the leader of the Labour Party in the in the manner in which it was done that same meeting. And you're not telling us whether you were at it or not. It was decided that you should be the replacement. Were you involved in the discussions to send a a contingent to Alan Kelly to ask him to leave? People are entitled to resign in politics, as Owen Murphy resigned last summer. When it happens, it can be very unexpected because clearly people have to make the decision themselves. Certainly for me, this would not have been a time of my choosing or making to be running for leader of the party. I was only elected as a TD last July, albeit after many, you know, many years in political activism. And, you know, these things happen in politics. We do have to move on. And I'm just so grateful, as I say, for the immense support I've received. New Labour leader Ivana Bacic there with Sarah on Drive Time. Over on Ray Darcy on Thursday, meanwhile, could this be a memorable week for a pop band in Ukraine? There's a concert in Birmingham next week. It's a concert for Ukraine. It's been headlined by Ed Sheeran. And the reason I'm telling you about this is because a group of lads in Kiev got wind of this. And these lads are in the army. But five weeks ago, they weren't in the army. They were in a pop band. Taurus is the lead singer of this pop band. And as Ray describes it, they've swapped being in a boy band for being soldiers. Taurus and his bandmates have reached out, as the phrase goes, to the organisers of this concert so that they can take part in it remotely. Hello Ed, greetings from Kyiv. Today we learned about your charity concert for Ukraine. Our band will play our music in Kyiv, a city that has not surrendered and will never surrender to the Russian occupiers. We are not afraid to play under the bombs. Through music we want to show the world that Ukraine is strong and unconquered. Taras joins us now from Kiev. Hello everybody from the capital of Ukraine. Uh, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. I have three kids with my wife. My wife with my kids they are far away from Kiev, so they are in safety place. Have you and your band members been on the front line yet? The pop band members have swapped microphones for flat jackets and as Taurus told Ray, from his position in Kiev, it's really tough. Uh, yeah, of course, hearing that the Russian uh, military troops are uh, nearby Kiev and they preparing chemical attacks. Yeah, you know, Kiev attacking bombs and uh, like uh, missiles, Russian missiles, is for three weeks uh, today also. 
Okay. You should know that we are very grateful and thank you for your help that you have done for helping our people. It's very important for us. You should know, Taras, that the people of Ireland are standing uh, behind you and in solidarity with you. Just stay safe, mind yourself. But before Taras hung up, he told Ray that after a hard day in Kiev, he likes to kick back with an Irish whiskey. Just to relax. <laughs> and you know, we're drinking Irish whiskey. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Just a little bit. This is our toast. Say slauncha. When you click your glasses together, say slauncha. Right, yeah, Taurus, yeah. mind yourself. Stay Slaunter. safe. Bye now. Sloan, bye, bye. Thank bye. you. Slauncha, Taurus. Slauncha. But finally, a memorable week for Oboe with David Agnew. After 40 years of playing professionally, he had his final performance with the concert orchestra during the week and he joined Claire Byrne on Thursday. Why the oboe? How did that happen? <laughs> Why? Yeah, Where did I know. It start? It, 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 to be honest, it's in the buckets with the banjo and the bagpipes. You know, like I was playing guitar. Rory Gallagher was my go-to guy. You know, I used to go and see. So I, I was playing guitar in a show, Fiddler on the Roof, and um, I just heard the sound across the other side of the orchestra. Now, I mean, I tried the piano. I'd, I'd play. You know, I was a reasonable recorder player. I was a, a good, a terrible singer, but like I just heard the sound and and I just was curious about it. And it's it called you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. And there's one signature piece of music associated with David Agnew that he told Claire has brought him all over the world. It's Gabriel's oboe. And we will say Sloan to you now this morning with this. David Agnew and the hauntingly beautiful Gabriel's Oboe ending playback which was compiled and presented by Evelyn O'Rourke and if something catches your ear during the week and you think yep that should make the cut on next week's playback you can send us an email to playback at rte.ie and of course thank you in advance Playback on RTE Radio 1 